The text this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. And God will destroy both and the other. Body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. And do you not know that our bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. That's a great way to start off this sermon. Because as we've been studying 1 Corinthians, what Paul is sort of having to do here amongst this early congregation is take the gospel that they've heard of their salvation, and now it comes in with all sorts of new ways of thinking. The gospel not only is just salvation one day, but things will be made right. It's not just an insurance policy that... In the event of a disaster, you're covered, right? The gospel was good news of an entire new way of living, an entire new way of thinking, and a new way of being. And I didn't plan to, to do this in my introduction, but I just was thinking, I mean, this was so me in high school. I was raised like so many of you guys are in church um, and believed in the gospel, and I believe I saw fruit in my life, but it wasn't until later high school when I was sort of adopted by a friend, you met Gabe, a good friend who began to ask me questions about life, sexual purity, vocation, what I wanted to do with job, what I was studying in college. We started looking at uh, books that were pointing me to just just the way the earth is tuned, me flying around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour, rotating on its axis at 1,000 miles an hour. That's Mach 86 to an Air Force pilot. And just going like, just the whole world before my eyes expanding. And seeing that God was not just this insurance policy device, something that I really wanted on my side, but I could basically live however I wanted. And typically with a sense of guilt and shame, I wanted to do it right as a Christian. At least I didn't want my friends who were also Christians to be embarrassed of me or my parents. But I don't know that it was reviving to the soul like we just read. The precepts of the Lord are right. And I'll tell you, um, it was when that shoe dropped, which I think is a great way to start this sermon on sexual lusts. It was when that shoe dropped that the ways of the Lord are not um, uh, muffled pleasures, are not to to just be ascetic and, and to turn away from joy, but it was actually that... The Lord's ways were wiser, higher, more deep, more, more fueled with energy, more just filled with 
pleasure and glory than anything that I had read or had seen in my friends. It was when the gospel and the Bible became, became living, became what the, the, the writers of, of Scripture say, I, my, as, a, as a deer pants for water, so I pant for the Scriptures. I want the Scriptures in high school. What, what happens with that? How does that happen? It's the work of the Lord. It says, I, I, I want this. I want something greater, something bigger. So what the Bible does, what the gospel does, is it becomes a whole new worldview. If you've heard that phrase, some people describe it as, as a lens with which to kind of view the world. Your whole worldview begins to change. And as we have seen with the Corinthians, the, uh, Paul's pastoral challenge here is not just to bring them the doctrine of their salvation like he had done in maybe the book of Romans, but to go in as a pastor and say, but now as Christians, brothers, well, let's take a look at what we're doing. We, our wisdom is a completely different set of wisdom. Our, uh, the way we handle conflict with one another, like we saw last week, and feuds and being defrauded and using the same court system and the scandals of the world, well, we do it differently. We saw in chapter 5, a church discipline, church uh, leadership in chapter 4. But in this chapter, we see a whole new set of teachings about not just sexual teachings, not really just sexual immorality, but it's a whole doctrine of the body. What do you do with your body as a Christian? Right? What are we supposed to do? We have, we're enfleshed, right? Everything we know, we experience in a body. What does the Bible have to say about that experience? And so we see life under grace, life in Christ, with all this new way of looking at the world. In chapter 6, is a look at the body. And if there's anything that I think in our day that we don't get right, we don't understand, it's the doctrine of the body. We don't really know what to do with our bodies. We can chop them up, we can change them, we can hate them, we can idolize them, we can stuff them full of plastics, we can stuff them full of pharmaceuticals. We, we just don't know what to do with bodies. And then you go to the church and it's, you know, we talk a lot about the soul and the morality of things, and we can sort of distance ourselves from teaching on the body. But this was radical new way of looking at the world, of what to do with your hands and your feet, and even what to do with your appetites. So we want to look at this text, verses 12 through 21, but we, we want to identify, I think there's six things, six ways that the... The Bible is retraining our view of sex in the body. So if you're following along, we're going to look at six things, the way this text sort of retrains, refocuses our eyes on sex and the body. Look at this one as the first example. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me. That's going to be the heading, all things are lawful. The text says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Notice that a lot of your Bibles will have these in quotation marks. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Okay? Apparently that was some sort of teaching that they had heard. Um, and so Paul kind of here is, is rehashing and rephrasing, saying, well, well, yes, you've heard this teaching that, that all things are lawful for me. Um, do you remember last week when I was trying to make this analogy, and I, I hope that the analogy made any sense at all to you guys, but I was using this analogy of being in prison. 
right? And I had done some prison ministry. I was trying to make a funny joke, which I do have lots of great stories that I'll have to save and share later. But it does feel that way when you're bound in sin. Sin is slavery, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning. Sin and temptation can make even the Garden of Eden look like a prison. Like, I, I, I'm so uncomfortable here that I have to take on whatever pleasure is offered to me just to get relief because I'm just trapped here. And that's what sin does. And so the gospel had come in and said, look, you're free. You're no longer enslaved in sin. That was what they had heard. However, they were taking that message to say, look, all things are lawful for me. Right? Dietary laws and, and, and laws re- regarding clothing. I, I'm free. I can sort of do anything. And then they began to apply that too liberally and that they can do anything even sexually. Right? And so Paul says, yeah, it's, it's true in a sense that all things are lawful for me. But not all things are, are helpful for me. Um, it, it's lawful for you today to go run back and forth across 285. I'm actually not sure if that's lawful. Maybe not. It's lawful to jump off a bridge. Right? But right, it, it might not be a wise thing to do. Right? There's lots of things in there to learn from the scriptures, uh, particularly to the Corinthians, that is giving them wisdom. All things are lawful. Sure, we are now set free in Christ. As Augustine says, uh, worship the Lord and do as you please. Right? We're not bound by all these micro laws that we have to perform something to please God. All of our righteousness belongs to Christ, and it was given over on our behalf. We are free, brothers and sisters. If you ever think, as kids, you have to come in and please God by doing a certain list of things, what you want to hear from us is high grace. You have been given over all of Christ's righteousness, not some and that you have to take care of your portion, but you've given all of Christ's righteousness, and worshiping Him is just part of joy. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we're free in a sense. But then there's this whole other sense where Paul says, yes, we're free, but not everything that you do is beneficial, right? What does wisdom demand for us in the use of our bodies? What does scripture, what does wisdom demand? Um, It's lawful for me to watch Game of Thrones. It might not be beneficial for me. It's lawful for me to sit on TikTok all day long from the moment I wake up. It might not be beneficial to me. It's lawful for me to flip my phone on the second I roll over after the alarm. It's probably not beneficial to me. There's all sorts of applications and ways that we could see when the use of the body is, sure, we're free, but this might not be the best use of what we're doing. And the, the test case would be, Paul says, I'm not going to be a slave to anything. Romans 6 says that we are, how are we to present our members? What do you do with the members of your body? He says we are to present them as members of righteousness. We are bondservants to Christ to use mouth, hands, nose, ears, taste, flesh, ambition for, for God's glory, for his name. Which is a whole lot better than being made for no purpose at all, which many people believe. And a whole lot better than being a walking, living stomach that only exists to consume. 
And you have no restraint over any lust or impulse or appetite that you have in front of you. And you become dominated in the flesh by just doing whatever you please. And that sort of analogy of things might not be beneficial to you, you're like, that's it's just piddly different things. Well, sure, all things are lawful for you, but are you totally shackled? Can you not get off the television, not get off the phone, not get off the flesh, not get off sexual appetite. Are you still bound in that prison cell in the living of your life with your body, eyes and hands, but free in the Lord? That seems to be a quite powerless gospel that Paul is saying that we don't have a powerless gospel. The gospel that we preach comes in power. Man is now free, and not just spiritually, as if one day we'll go to heaven, but you're free today. Such were some of you, was the last uh, bit of preaching that we got last week uh, in the earlier verses in chapter 6. Such were some of you, brothers. You were totally trapped. But that doesn't have to be you any longer. Because God not only frees your soul from guilt and shame, but He frees your hands. And he frees your eyes. And he frees your appetite, and your anger, your frustration. So the first thing we're, we'll see there is that what do we do with our bodies? God has God is said, look, all, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Don't be a walking, talking stomach. Uh, what we see elsewhere in Scripture is they worshipped and bowed down to belly gods, right? You got an appetite, you just go for it. You're nothing, you're nothing greater than a stomach. Number two would be the Lord is for the body. God is for your body. Notice again the quotation marks in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So that quotation marks is sort of representative of a a phrase, a philosophy that had infiltrated that kind of Greek culture. And it was just, you know what? Our, if you know kind of uh, Plato's thoughts and even the thoughts of the Stoics, there's kind of a divide here with their worldview of soul and body. Uh, Plato kind of had the, the forms, right? There's the sort of the perfect realm and down here in the realm of the flesh, the hands, the eyes, the appetites. Right? It, it's just all sort of meaningless. It's not really worth anything. But it's the, it's the soul that's elevated. It's the soul that's to be prized. And, and if, if, if I've heard it said, if Plato could have put a mind just in a vat, that's how he would have uh, seen ultimate existence. Right? You know, the body is just weak. It's decaying. It's prone to needs and hunger and fatigue and weakness and sexual appetite. And so you'd have people in this society who'd say, a lot like our own society, you just do whatever you want with your body. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't taint you. Look, your stomach's meant for food, and food is meant for the stomach, right? It's just logical sense. When you're hungry, you eat. You got a scratch on your leg, you reach down, you itch, you scratch it. And if you have a sexual appetite, you're feeling like you want to do something, go for it. That's how they viewed the flesh. And then you had the Stoics, Right, who, who saw that uh, sort of a similar mindset that the body was weak and the body was of no, no value. And so what you would sort of do is you would, you would starve it. You would choke it out. Right? You would uh, be an ascetic. You would, uh, to uh, boost the mind, to boost the soul, you would restrain the flesh. And 
it's kind of an interesting dichotomy to see with the world we have today. You have the world outside, kids. It's no, this would be no surprise to you, right? The world kind of just says you do what you want, do your pleasure. Nobody can judge you. That's kind of the always kind of push. You should always be 21. Whether you're 12 or 15, you should always try to aim like you're 21. The ladies, if you're over 21, you should always aim down until you're 21. It's like this weird social messaging that we get. Um, and then you can think, which I don't think this is true, but you can think, oh, well, those in the church are the Stoics. They're the ascetics. You just choke it out. The flesh is to be repressed. But the message we have today is sort of radically different. What do you do with a body? What do you do with appetites? What do you do with those who are living life under grace? You could apply that same logic, right? The eye is for the screen, and the screen is for the eye, and the phone is for the hand, and the hand is for the phone. It's a bit of a silly logic. But that's how they viewed their bodies. Paul says, but God will destroy both food and the body. And what he means by that is it's not to say that it's unimportant, but he says that these appetites are a passing thing. They're not ultimate things. So not to live your life as if the ultimate thing that matters is this appetite that you have. Oh man, I remember day and day and day and year and year being trapped by that lie. Just got this, got this appetite, right? I want to live by it. It's a controlling, can't break it, feel totally bound, totally chained. I have to obey its commands. It's the ultimate thing in life. And Paul just kind of has this pen. He pops the balloon and goes, boop, all of that's going to be destroyed. It's not ultimate. Your existence is not bound up in your stomach and how you feel. Not about yourself, not about how you look, not about your appetites. There's something bigger there's something greater for you than to just walk around in the lusts all the time. He says that the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Like your logic is saying, well, the body's meant for sexual immorality, so I'll just do it. He says, no, the body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So I've entitled this sermon a new slogan because that was their slogan, right? Food for the stomach, stomach for food. You just want to do it, you should go do it. Who's to stop you? Who's to judge you? Paul says, no, there's a, a new slogan for Christians. No, the gospel has come to you, brothers. The, the Lord is for the body. And the body's for the Lord. You've got to understand here, what we're also dealing with historically is, is that in that context, the body was of, of such little uh, account, was of such little importance that, uh, remember earlier we said that the Corinthians thought that the gospel was just stupid. Because here was uh, their God, the Christian's God, who came down as what? A baby. Wrapped in flesh and died. And then on top of all of that silliness, do you know what he came back in and all of his power? Flesh. Again. Why? Right? That's stupid. Why would you come back as flesh? You, you go into heaven's just fine. Right? But not this enfleshed body, not this enfleshed soul. That seemed like foolishness. So one of our inheritances as a Christian is that God redeems the body. The body is not meant for lust. It's meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 
You are made in God's image to bear his glory. And yes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We feel that. But now your primary identity is not in just what you feel as an appetite, but who you are made to be in the image of God. Your body is redeemed by the Lord. Okay? When your stain of sin is gone, your body is redeemed by the Lord. And I, I, I know what it feels like to look in the mirror and not be totally thrilled in what, what you see, right? That, that, that happens. We all feel that. We age. We, we change. But what a remarkable thing to know that the Lord has made you in every shape and size and sort of angular way and redeemed our bodies. The Lord is for the body, and the body is for the Lord. The Lord is for you. So we're not walking stomachs. So how should we partake in this freedom? We have this freedom. What are we supposed to do with it? Food or exercise, sex. I think two things sort of guide us, and be quick here. Two things sort of guide us in in the ways we would use our bodies. Sort of taking Augustine's phrase of worship the Lord and do as you please. Number one would be worship. What can I do with vocal cords and fingers that can hold a pen? Fingers that can type on a keyboard. Nose that can smell. Hands that can stir a pot. Right? What kind of food would I make? What kind of words would I say? If I can form words in conversations, what would I say? What would I sing? How would I interact with people? Strong back that can carry a child. Right? How am I going to live? Am I a walking, talking stomach only meant for my pleasures? Or am I designed with features to glorify God, to see and savor and to share who He is? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? All that we are to be done, uh, do in our lives is to be done in, in worship. And part of, I think, violating the commandment of not to take the Lord's name in vain is not merely with your lips. It is that you bear the image of God. And we can hold that image very lightly as well, taking it in vanity that we are image bearers of God. Second way to, to, to live as those with a body that the Lord is for is in gratitude. Right? To stand before a mirror with all of the displeasure you may feel and just be grateful. Be grateful that the Lord has given you a body to enjoy His good gifts. It's not our identity. It's not our sole reason for living, but it's the one we've been given. That we can consume great food and we can have great love and great intimacy with others and we can not worship it, but be taken as a gift to be enjoyed, not be consumed by it, but rather to consume with great joy. And I was just thinking as I was writing this, the Lord is for your body. And I've heard it said this before. You know, if you, if you want to hurt somebody that you can't get at them, a lot of times what you do to that public figure is you, you sort of uh, desecrate them in effigy. You ever seen that, right? So you take a poster of somebody and you can't actually get to that person, but you take a poster of it and you draw a mustache on him, you throw a tomato at him or something, you, you vandalize that and... Sometimes we, we do that with our own bodies. That's what happens when the soul curves in upon itself and, and, and is frustrated with, that, with the Lord. Paganism always leads to the denigration of the body. For whatever reason, that's just the trajectory that it goes. With all of its 
talk of pleasure and this is going to be good for you, it, it desecrates the body. So it, it can show up riding on your arm, cutting your arms, overeating, undereating, overdrinking, hyperdiets, throwing your lips full of fillers, surgical enhancements, surgical corrections. It's to base our sexual interactions, brutality. I don't know why. The body means nothing. The trajectory goes to brutality. The body goes to laziness or idolization of fitness. Brothers, we're not slaves. We're not slaves and we're not purposeless. Right? And the Lord doesn't just not care about your body. Your body is for the Lord, not to be idolized, but to be honored. And the Lord is for the body. The Lord is for you in your body. Number three. Three of six. We're only halfway. Good thing you're all captivated by this. Number three. God will raise us up by his power. 1 Corinthians 6.14. Look with me. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The body's going to be redeemed. The body's not useless and we shouldn't treat it carelessly. The body is our soul Infleshed. Right? That's what the body is. It's, it's the soul with flesh on it. Our bodies are theology infleshed. Theology comes out of what you do. So if you talk about theology in church, part of my task as a pastor is to try to help us to see that our theology is not just what we think and what we write down in our statement of faith, but the measure of this church is actually what we do, not what we intend to do, not what we would like to do, but what we actually, actually do. And a person's theology is what they actually do. The Lord will raise the body. It's a distinctly Christian doctrine, not only on the day of, of new creation, but Colossians 3.1 says, says it this way. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And he's talking to people who are still living. If then you have been raised, part of the Christian message, and tying it back to what Paul's preaching in, in this chapter, is that, look, it's hard to be a Christian in, in Corinth. It's hard to be a Christian in Corinth. There's temple prostitutes everywhere. It was just sort of normal. Hey, look, stomach's for food. Food's for stomach. Might as well partake. It's hard to be a Christian here now. It's hard to be a Christian and turn the news on, watch TV, hold my phone in my hand. It's, just, it's hard to not sort of wallow in appetite. But you know what the gospel is? is that the Lord has power not only to one day raise your body, the body that will decay, the body that will die, but Colossians says that you have been raised in Christ now. Brothers, such were some of you. And so there's, there's a sense you can feel guilt. I get it. We've all sinned in the body. It's how we sin. Sexually, uh, appetites in many varieties. 
But it shouldn't be shameful for people to come into the church and then never hear a testimony of how the Lord redeems our bodies. Right? That should be kind of common because it's very common that those are the types of sins that we deal with. The Christian testimonies inside the church should be glory to God, such were some of us, such were all of us, such were many of us. The ways that we denigrate and worship and live in flesh. God has changed the way we live in this body. I remember a lightning bolt sort of happened. I was reading, uh, I remember sitting elbow to elbow across this book. Um, At the time I was living in my sister's sort of like finished attic. I remember exactly where I was reading John Piper's Desiring God. Anybody familiar with that? And so he makes this argument about, you know, uh, Christian hedonism, right? So hedonism is this kind of search for pleasure. You're always living for pleasure. And he makes this argument for Christian hedonism. And the, uh, the real Christian is not the one who's sort of afraid of pleasure and uh, trying to get away from it and live a holy life, but someone who even more of an appetite is running after the things of God and finding there more fulfillment than he was finding in the world. So he's saying that your appetite isn't, isn't too big. It's actually much too small to use a phrase from C.S. Lewis. You want to actually to have an appetite that says, I want more than this, and you're going to find the things I do, I'm running as hard as anybody and harder than the world to find pleasure in God. And I remember this verse uh, sort of striking me then and carrying it with me ever since. It's Psalm 1611, right? Uh, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I remember just wanting that so bad. And my testimony to you guys is that I, I can say now after, you know, 15 years of that, tasting and seeing that the Lord is the Lord is good. It is so true. To look around the brokenness of the world, particularly in how we use our body, uh, what we're going to get to in just a minute is is some of the heaviest burdens that we have in our culture, some of the most heavy burdens that we carry on the souls of the people around us are sexual burdens. Sexual sins, the the sins that kind of partake in the body. But being so right that in the Lord is the fullness of joy. I mean, that was a greater pleasure. There was more octane, more fuel in that than what I felt in the flesh. And that chain was gone, not because I had to suppress appetite, but because I had to run harder and find that the joy was truly there. So enjoying God is essential to glorifying God. Enjoying God is critical to glorifying God. That's how we do it. I commend that book to you. And while I'm on the subject, I'll also commend the book Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. If you like to explore, do a deep dive on what God has to say about the body, let me commend the book Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. We're given as Christians the fruit of the Spirit, one of them being self-control. So God is for your body. Number four, your bodies are meant for Christ. Verse 15, do you not know that bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Taking our bodies into sexually immoral relationships, right? So sexual relationships outside of the covenant of marriage is to join the body of Christ into those relationships. We've already seen in Corinthians that Paul is building a doctrine that we are in flesh the temples of the Holy Spirit. 
And so this philosophy that nothing is going on, there's no exchange going on in a sexual relationship amongst the Greeks because the body is really just nothing but uh, this kind of flesh suit that has its appetites and, and you got to keep it alive and you got to keep it happy. The Bible is saying, no, there's something else happening, that you are more than just a body, that you are a soul in a body. And when it's combined in a sexual union, something that Ephesians sort of says, Paul says, look, there's this mystery of Christ and his church. And when they're united together, it's a display of the gospel inside the bounds of covenant. It's typology of what the gospel is in mutual covenant. Self-sacrifice. Washing the bride in love. But to partake of that outside of covenant is broken typology of Christ. And because you are two souls, you are mingling things that are not just flesh, but you're mingling souls. You're linked to the Lord, one spirit with Him. Fornication becomes false typology, uncovenantal, faux union, anti-love and anti-truth. Christians begin to grasp this, and they would live radically different lives. There was a story of an Alexandrian slave, uh, Patamena is her name, and she refused to be a sex slave any longer. Which, by the way, if you weren't married, you were pretty much a sex slave, male or female, around the sort of the temple uh, prostitution rings. And so kind of another note on that connection of soul and body was the reason why the temple had prostitutes is because they knew that there was something kind of going on there with the soul. There's, there's some sort of form of worship there and connection there that they were trying to grasp for. It wasn't merely just fleshy. But this lady became a Christian, and she refused any longer to be a sex slave. And she was labeled because of her uh, renouncing of being taken advantage of in that way, she was labeled a Christian and sentenced to be uh, sexually bu- brutalized. Um, she pled her case and was allowed not to be sexually brutalized, but instead be boiled in pitch to death. While she was in prison, she is telling the testimony of, of Christ and the liberty in Christ and the freedom. There, this worldview that's so elevating that they're more than just bodies, they're more than just this abuse, they're more than this, just this stomach and this appetite, and they're more than just uh, the, the denigration of themselves that many in the prison became Christians. And one notable prison guard named Basilides, who later was also martyred. Christianity changed the total ethic of the world. Not just by this mental thought, which is, by the way, this was the Gnostic thought, was that the gospel was just a spiritual reality. That it wasn't for the body. That you could follow Christ and all this spiritual wisdom, but the body was still just here. It was, it was trapping you. No, the, the Lord redeems the body. It's a lot to live for. It's a lot to live for. There's a lot to live for every day. Number five, and then number six. Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have within you? You are not your own. Paul's instructions here are not to 
pause and do battle with sexual lusts, right? Those appetites. and Sort of force yourself to, to sort of exist in, among the pressure, but just to hold strong. He says, get, get away from it. Get away from it, right? What you do starts in your appetite, right? And if you're waging war, an appetite for Christ versus an appetite for the flesh, and you're putting the flesh in front of your face every day, you're going to lose, you're going to, you're, you are going to lose, and you're setting yourself for failure. All things are lawful for yourself, sure, but it's not smart. Does that make sense, sort of to tie this back? Like, I have to live in that reality every day, so do you. I know that all things are lawful for me. I can put so many things in front of my face, but I'm married to my wife, and I have a covenant with my wife. I have a, a, a role here as your pastor to lead you in integrity. I have a role as a father to lead in integrity, and above all of that, to stand before God and I know that I am a fool when I spend my days not fleeing from sexual immorality, but just thinking I can tolerate it, thinking I can sort of consume like everybody else and just be fine. But in the mental landscape of my mind, it's filled with images and catechisms of the flesh. That, you know what, after all, I am just a flesh suit. And just like an itch, I should scratch it. I should do whatever I please. Everyone's doing it. They're doing it all around me. They're trying to sell me bars of soap and ice cream in a bikini. I don't know why. Please tell me why. There's a doctrine here that other sins are outside the body. And and that's kind of not true, right? We can steal things with our hands. But there's something sexual that's going deeper into the soul. And he's linking it to your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit and if you know about the Old Testament, right, and you know about the laws of going into the temples, that the temple is not allowed to be desecrated. It's not allowed to be profaned. It's not allowed to be corrupted, right? And so the temple of the Holy Spirit, where your body is, dwelling with the Lord, is, is, it's not okay to fill it full of profanity. It says run away. Just, just get away from it. Boys, one of the best things you can do, one of the greatest sermons I remember hearing was hearing that Joseph running away from Potiphar's wife was him running to a crown. Right? So running away from Potiphar's wife was him running to a crown. There was a lot of trials along the way, but that dynamic is a true one. Right? Running away, fleeing sexuality, is, is running to authority. It's running to responsibility. It's running to the grace of God not just running away from pleasure. Calvin says, there's an emphasis implied in the term temple, for as the spirit cannot uh, take up his abode in a place that is profane, we do not give him a habitation otherwise than by consecrating ourselves to him as temples. And remember, I want to keep remembering that if there's a sense of shame or guilt, that the body's this temple and you've desecrated it and, and the language, and there's, there's truth in that. But there's also truth that we have been washed. We have been sanctified. We have been justified. We've been cleaned. We've been set apart. And we've been made righteous in Christ. What, what good news. So to a world that feels like their body is just useless, to a world that feels like they're treated by marketers as just living stomachs, there's nothing to live for, Christ profoundly says, No, you're mine. I bought you. You belong to me, every square inch and every extra pound, and I am for you. And you exist to bear my image. And yes, you do it imperfectly, but I have washed you, 
sanctified you, and justified you. Live among a world that doesn't care for their bodies as those who don't idolize it, who aren't ashamed of it, who won't desecrate it thinking it's nothing, but who carry it as members of the Lord, which is the last piece. Verse 20, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. First Peter 1.18 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, not even with those foolish things, right? Most precious metals we, we carry around, but something more precious. You're bought with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It's no small cost. When we go to partake of communion here in just a minute, one of the things that we're reminded of is that what sent Jesus to the cross? What was it? It was our sin. It's a pretty costly thing. Pretty important thing. He thought a lot about our bodies. thought a lot about the sin that we're enfleshed in. But it's no small cost that he paid. A Christian man is a man who thinks not of his rights, but of his debts. He can never do what he likes because he never belongs to himself. He must always do what Christ likes, because Christ bought him at the cost of his life. One of the things I've always found fun with the gospel is that Christ frees you from the slavery of sin, which is great if you're frustrated about being a slave to sin. And Christ frees you by giving you his righteousness, which is great if you want a clean record of his righteousness and, and get rid of guilt and shame. One of the funny things is, is that Christ purchases you with his love and his, and his grace that doesn't just make you a free agent now with all the benefits of a, guilt, of a clean conscience. It makes you desperately wanting to cling to him for life and health and vision and wisdom and vitality and resurrection. There's nowhere else to turn. The gospel doesn't come to free you to turn back into yourself and you can just exist there. That's, that's not it. The gospel exists is that we were bought with a price to live as bond servants to Christ. And, and you know what? It's a Christian's testimony to say, I don't want to be free. I certainly don't want to be a slave anymore. I want to be Christ. Body and soul. First answer to our catechism question, right? Who am I? Body and soul belong to Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, kids, glorify God in your body. So glorify God in your body. Our theology comes out of our hands. Our theology comes out of our mouths. Our theology comes with what we do, not just what we say we want to do. Okay? And for those who bear the stain of sin, the guilt of the flesh, like many of us do, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is world-changing stuff. In a world that we're about to go back out to, that would likely take up the banner that this text uh, Im- implies, that there's nothing much more than being a belly. It's a very countercultural, very profound message to bear in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is total freedom, full freedom, not just for your soul, but for your body.